Jesus' parables confront people with the reality of the reign of God. And you need to understand that. They tell us what God's kingdom is like. This is Andrew Smith, pastor of Christ Reformed Community Church, located in St. Johns County, Florida, just south of Jacksonville and a short distance from St. Augustine. The sermons on this podcast are preached weekly at Christ Reformed, and we'd love for you to join us for worship. Let me tell you a little bit about our church. Three words can help describe our church in simple terms. First, we are confessional. We endorse and teach from both the Westminster Standards along with the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. Second, we are expositional. Our church's ministry focuses on the expository preaching of God's Word. Currently, I'm preaching through the Gospel of Mark. Third, we are intentional. This church was established in early 2016 with the intention of focusing on the ordinary means of grace. It is the study of God's Word, prayer, and the sacraments that remain our focus as a church. So if you are interested in a confessional Reformed Church plant intentional to focus on the simplicity of ministry, you may want to consider visiting us. Our meeting address is 161 Hampton Point Drive, Suite 2, St. Augustine, Florida, 32092. We are located less than three miles from Interstate 95 and less than two miles from Extension 9B. We are just south of Julington Creek. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, www.christreformedcc.com. Also, for access to more sermons, as well as articles and a podcast I host focusing on church history and theology, you can visit www.pastorandrewsmith.com. Now, let's take our Bibles and open them to the Gospel of Mark for our sermon this week. Well, let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4. And uh, this morning as we move along in our study of the Gospel of Mark, we come to a very familiar portion of Scripture. Very familiar portion of Scripture. The parable of the sower. And I prefer that title, by the way, not the parable of the soils. The parable of the sower. I think titles are important. Uh, because there have been various misinterpretations of this parable. And uh, if you differ with me on the title, that's okay. I don't want to battle you on it, but I do want to convince you this morning that you should call it the parable of the sower. And I think that I can do that as we look at this text together. Mark chapter 4, let's stand in honor of the reading of God's Word, beginning in verse 1. Let us hear the Word of God together. Again, he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables, and in his teaching he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, 
To you it has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the seed, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, and they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among the thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit, thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. This is the word of our living God. Please be seated as we ask the Lord for help. Our Father in heaven, we come and we approach the climax of our worship, the preaching of your word, asking for your grace, asking for your help, asking that you would help us to heed the very words of Christ in this passage, that he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Help us to hear the gospel, help us to hear the voice of Christ, help us to be convicted and reproved, help us to know whether or not we're truly in your kingdom, help us to see fruit in our lives that you allow to be yielded because of the power of your Holy Spirit. Meet with us at this time. We pray that because we're confident that you are and that you will speak to us. Grant us great insight into this passage, we pray, in the blessed and strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, here in Mark chapter 4, we're moving into another chapter, but really this is following the events that we looked at last week when Jesus was accused by the religious leaders of operating in the power of Beelzebul. And Mark reveals to us that Jesus is now preaching to a very large crowd. As I indicated last week, Mark likes to use what we call a sandwiching technique, and we saw that last week where he uh, provides a sort of theological piece of bread There um, in verses 20 and 21 about the family of Jesus. And then you have that whole exchange between Jesus and the religious leaders, verses 22 through 30, which are the meat of the sandwich. And then the final piece of bread, verses 31 through 35, where the family come back to try to seize him. It's a literary device where a section of Scripture is bracketed by two similar things. Here we see the same thing. We see in verses 1 through 9 an exposition of a parable. We see the meat of the sandwich in verses 10 through 13. And then we see the other piece of bread in verses 14 through 20 where Jesus returns back to the parable and gives an interpretation of it. It's Mark's theological sandwich. What Mark lacks in the teaching material of Jesus, which he does lack... He makes up for by constantly emphasizing the importance of Jesus' preaching. We saw this in chapter 1 and verse 38, that key verse, Jesus said, I must go and preach. Don't bother me with other things. I must go and preach. Mark emphasizes over and over the preaching ministry of Jesus, but he doesn't provide for us a lot of the teaching of Jesus. There are two exceptions to that. Mark chapter 4, as we see here in this discourse on parables, 
and in Mark chapter 13, where we see a long discourse on Jesus' teaching. But here in chapter 4 are the parables. Now, parables were commonly used even in Old Testament times. The Hebrew word mishal is translated parables in the Old Testament. Its equivalent can mean a comparison, a proverb, a riddle, or even an allegory. Following one contemporary scholar, many will make a sharp divide between parables and allegories, which I don't think is necessary. This has led many to claim that Jesus never used allegories, but we know that he used allegories, and we know that the Old Testament uses allegories or parables because the prophet Ezekiel refers to himself in Ezekiel chapter 20 as the maker of parables, a michelle, a simile, a metaphor, an allegory. In fact, God uses that word in Ezekiel 24. God told Ezekiel to utter a michelle, a parable, to the rebellious house of the southern kingdom. Jesus is the prophet of prophets, and if he wants to use an allegory, he has a right to do that. Paul does the same thing in the book of Galatians. But I point all this out to you because some of these scholars say that if it appears Jesus uses an allegory, then this allegory or parable was not originally Jesus's, but was placed in Scripture by the early church. And I don't think that's the case. A denial of Scripture using parables can actually be an argument, therefore, from liberals, not conservatives. Many conservatives look down upon the idea of an allegory being found in Scripture, but I think many of them are guilty at times of what liberal scholarship is guilty of, and that is an overreaction to the obvious abuse of the use of allegory in the early New Testament church. This parable has allegorical features, and I want to tell you that up front. It unlocks the meaning of the other parables. That's why it is longer, and that is why it is allegorical. But essentially, all the other parables of Jesus have one meaning. This one is different. It is distinct. It has several meanings because the four types of soil represent four different types of heart that receive the Word of God. So it's a more detailed, it's more complicated. At its root, Jesus' parables confront people with the reality of the reign of God. And you need to understand that. They tell us what God's kingdom is like. For example, in verse 11, notice your Bibles, Jesus says, To you has been given the secret of what? The kingdom of God. Or verse 26, And he said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. The kingdom of God. Verse 30, He said, With what can we compare the kingdom of God? Parables are about the kingdom of God. Now, I don't want to waste any time this morning because this is a long section of Scripture. I want to dig right into this parable, but what we find here in verses 1 through 20 are not simply a parable. We find the most important parable I think Jesus ever gave, number one. And number two, we find an explanation as to the reason Jesus gave parables to begin with. What is their purpose? In these verses, we are introduced to Jesus' style of parabolic preaching, which contains three features. Jesus' style of parabolic preaching, which contains three features. The first feature of Jesus' parabolic preaching is found in verses 1 through 9, and that's what we'll call the public exposition of Christ's Word. The public exposition of Christ's Word. Notice verse 1 again. 
he began to teach beside the sea. And a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and set in and on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. Now Mark doesn't tell us, but Matthew tells us in his account in Matthew 13 that that same day Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. So the same day that Jesus' family comes to him while he's in the house preaching and they're trying to get in and they can't get in that we just saw at the end of chapter 3. It's that same day that Jesus leaves the house, I think, to reflect upon all that has gone on. He's accused by the religious leaders of having a demon, of operating in the power of Satan. His own physical family is not believing in him with the exception of Mary, who is not acting like a believer at this point because she wants to seize Jesus, taking back to Nazareth and getting back to his normal senses. Jesus heads to the beach. But there were those who would receive his preaching, who would love his preaching, and as verse 1 says here, it was a very large crowd beside the sea, perhaps in the thousands. Jesus, you need to understand, would preach anywhere. He preached in the synagogues during the weekly services. It was his custom, Luke 4, to do that. He preached in the temple. John 18 says that. Jesus would preach anywhere. Jesus would preach anyhow. He preached from mountains. He preached from houses. He preached by the sea. He preached in the desert. He even preached at a funeral in John chapter 11. Jesus preached anyway. Here he sits in a boat. Other times he's sitting on the ground. Sometimes he preaches standing up. He even preached hanging on a cross. Jesus preached anywhere, anyhow, anyway, and to anybody. Jesus preached to Jews, to Gentiles, to Samaritans, to individuals, to the poor, to the rich. Anyone willing to listen. Jesus was a natural speaker. He was the incarnate Word of God. The best preacher who ever lived. And that's why John 7 says, Never did a man speak as this man speaks. And he didn't limit his opportunities or circumstances. He relished any opportunity to proclaim God's truth in preaching. I just want to say that preaching is a calling. Those called to it must take every and any opportunity they have to preach even allowing other things to be crowded out of their schedule to do that one thing. That was the pattern set down by the apostles in Acts chapter 6. That's why the whole diaconate office was selected, so the apostles could preach. And now it's the elders, specifically the pastor-teacher of the church, whose job it is to preach the Word of God, to be the voice of Christ. Now we know that Jesus' teaching was not some informal small group Bible study along this sea, because notice he uses the boat as a pulpit in verse 1. He got into the boat and he sat in it. That was the rabbinical style for teaching, to sit down. This floating boat would serve as his pulpit as it rocked to and fro on the water, serving as a buffer between him and the people, so as another passage says he wouldn't be crushed by the crowds. This pulpit boat served as a means of escape from the crowds and a means of exposition to the crowds. There's no time for a discussion group. This was a sermon. Jesus had just preached in the house and been rejected by his own family. He had been rejected by the religious establishment. This is a time for a sermon, not a discussion. And Jesus needed to be heard by people, so he gets into the boat. There have been archaeologists who have uncovered a natural amphitheater known as the Bay of Parables, close to Capernaum, which they believe to be the very site where Jesus was. The land slopes downward into a bay, and from this bay, scientists from Israel have proven that one can be heard crisply to several thousand people on shore when you're standing in the water. 
Perhaps a fulfillment of Psalm 29.10, the Lord sits enthroned over the flood of many waters, telling us that when God's word is preached, God's voice is heard. And Jesus' voice would have thundered on that beach as He proclaimed this parable. And that's what He's doing. Notice verse 2. He was teaching them many things in parables. Many things in parables. Most teaching contains very little preaching, but all preaching contains a ton of teaching. In fact, Jesus was an expositor primarily of the Old Testament. His sermons were very substantive with Old Testament texts. But here Mark tells us on this occasion, he was teaching in parables. These parables, as verse 11 indicates, verse 26 indicates, verse 30 indicates, were about the kingdom of God. Jesus came preaching, right? Chapter 1, verse 15, the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Mark indicates that he's only presenting some of the parables that Jesus preached. Because, skip down to verse 33, Mark says, with many such parables he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. Jesus reached a point in his ministry where he did use parables exclusively, and that is an important point of notation. Matthew tells us in Matthew 13, all these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. There would come a day in which that would be the exclusive way by which Jesus preached. Now that word parable, I've mentioned it earlier, it's the Greek word parabole, and it's made up of two Greek words, the Greek word para, which means alongside, and the Greek word balo, which means to place. So very simply, a parable is placing something alongside something else to make a comparison. One childlike definition might be this, earthly realities with heavenly meanings. Earthly realities with heavenly meanings. That is a parable. Taking things familiar from the world, fishing, farming, family life, compared to spiritual concepts. Sometimes presented in short figures of speech like we saw last time in chapter 3 when Jesus spoke uh, in verse 24 about a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. Um, A house divided against itself, a royal house divided against itself cannot stand. Talking about... Satan being the strong man, Jesus the stronger man goes into the strong man's house, he ties him up, he steals what is his. Those were parables, and Mark even said that he began speaking to them in verse 23 in parables. Short, pithy, little figures of speech. There are examples of parables in the Old Testament. The most familiar one, 2 Samuel chapter 12, is the parable of the little lamb. Nathan the prophet confronts David with. The rich man had many flocks, but he stole a little lamb that was more like a pet for the poor man. He killed it. He cooked it up as a meal for a traveler passing through. He was a stingy rich man who the Bible says was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. So parables always existed. Jesus made up his own parables, but he didn't invent the concept of a parable. He's still functioning like an Old Testament prophet or an Old Testament preacher. That Greek word parable occurs 45 times in the Greek Septuagint. That is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's always there. Someone has said that parables are like stained glass windows on a church building. Sometimes unclear and blurry on the outside, but colorful and radiant on the inside. They are meant to reveal truth that is hidden. And God must reveal that truth. 
Sinclair Ferguson says this, and I quote, Parables reflect the principles of the kingdom of God and consequently serve as mirrors of our own lives. They force us to ask the question, where do I stand in relation to the kingdom of God? And they show us our hearts in light of God's word. So that's what a parable is. Now, as I said in my introduction, most parables have one meaning. This parable, as Jesus presents it here in his exposition, has multiple meanings. There have been a distortion of Scripture throughout church history. Even the church father Augustine from time to time was guilty of this. He interpreted, for example, the parable of the Good Samaritan allegorically. He identified the Samaritan as Jesus, the traveler as Adam, Jerusalem as heaven, Jericho as the moon, the robbers as the devil and his demons, the beating of the man representing the effects of sin, the binding of the wounds, the restraint of sin, the wine as encouragement to work for Christ, the donkey was the body of Christ, the inn is the church, the two coins represent the main two commandments to love, the innkeeper is the Apostle Paul, the return of the Samaritan is the resurrection of Christ, and that's just to name a few. It's a little ridiculous. One of my first seminary classes was New Testament interpretation taught by the famous New Testament scholar Robert Stein. And if you read his books, Stein does a good job of showing how it can be an overreaction to say that a parable only has one meaning just to avoid allegorical interpretation. We would disagree with Augustine's interpretation of the Good Samaritan. We would disagree with allegorical interpretation in general. But there are times in the Bible, there are even times in the ministry of Jesus where he uses allegory. This is one example of that. So Jesus begins this parable, which is essentially an allegory, in verse 3. The end of verse 2 says, in his teaching, he said to them, listen, listen. By the way, that word is in the imperative mood in Greek, akouo. Jesus is preaching. Preaching conveys urgency and energy, not apathy and informality. And I would say this, the more you place yourself under the preaching of God's Word, the more you hear God. The less you do it, the less you hear God. We live in an age in which we must listen to sermons. We can listen to sermons. Sermons on our fingertips mean spirituality in our hearts. We shouldn't wait till Sunday for the church service to listen to sermons. We live in a period in church history in which sermons are proclaimed on the internet. Jesus says, listen. Listen, akuo. And that Greek word, akua, is similar to the Greek word for obey. Hupakuain is the Greek word for obey. It has the prefix hoop, which translates into the word hyper. And that's led R.C. Sproul to say that obedience in Christianity is hyper hearing. It's looking into the Word of God, James chapter 1, the perfect law of liberty, as a mirror. And it's not walking away from that, forgetting what you look like. It's allowing God's Word to affect us. And what I would tell us this morning is that we need to listen to this parable. We understand what a parable is now, but we must listen to this parable to listen to the voice of Christ. Notice it, verse 3. Behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. A natural scene, it's an agrarian culture, a farming culture. A farmer with a seed bag on his shoulder scattering seed was common. Perhaps there was even one in the background as Jesus preached and the crowd was looking at him. We don't know. We know that God is the one who spreads the seed of His Word. God is the sower. He is the one who controls where His seed lands. But like the parable, 
Sometimes it seems that his seed is scattered haphazardly. It seems like his seed is scattered in vain. But we need to understand the Word of God. We need to understand that such is not true regarding the Word of God. What does the Isaiah, Isaiah the prophet say in Isaiah 55? He says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and don't return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower, bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and it shall succeed in the very thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy. We go out in joy and preach the gospel. We know Christ is reigning, right? We know that His kingdom is here. We know that He's going to usher people in. The seed of the Word will have its effect. God will be glorified no matter what the response is, whether it's favorable or negative. And here we read in verse 4 that some seed fell along the path. Those would have been narrow footpaths separating one field from another. The same paths that Jesus and the disciples were walking on in chapter 2 when the Pharisees accused them of breaking the Sabbath for picking heads of grain. And the picture here is of a farmer scattering that seed before moving on along that path and birds coming and devouring that seed because it's so packed down that it just bounces off. And then verse 5 says, Other seed fell on rocky ground. There was a form of plowing in ancient Israel to prepare the field, but underneath that shallow Israelite soil was a bedrock, usually of limestone, that one couldn't see. So you would drop seed there, and it would take root for a little while, and then before you know it, it was unable to root down. The seed would land there. It didn't have much soil, as verse 5 says. The crop would immediately spring up, and as verse 6 says, when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Luke 8, 6 says, Some fell on the rocky ground, and as it grew up, it withered because it had no moisture. A lack of soil means a lack of moisture, which means no adequate root system resulting in sun damage on the rocky soil. The first church I pastored in West Virginia had a little parsonage that was separated from the church building about 100 yards from it, and it was uh, voted on one time in a church business meeting that uh, we needed to plant some seed and It was a huge field, and the deacon of the week, whoever that was, oftentimes would forget to mow that field, and it would take hours to mow. So on Saturday evening, I would get out on the tractor, and I would mow this field because I wanted wanted it to look good on Sunday. But it bothered me there were patches of barrenness. I had never planted seed in my life, so a, a guy in the church had a tractor. He came over. We removed those huge rocks. We uh, picked rocks out with our hands, we scattered the seed, we put straw on top of it, and we watered it and watered it and watered it and watered it. He left, and I watered it and watered it and watered it. And every time I went out to water it, I noticed more rocks. It was impossible to remove all those rocks. It was inevitable that rocks would interfere with the planting of that seed. But by the time it was done, when you drove by the church on the highway, you'd see this little church, this little parsonage, this big green field, and over in the corner, a nice, lush patch of green grass because all the rocks were removed. Not here. Some of the seed falls, and it falls on the rocks. There's another type of soil presented in verse 7. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. So seed fell where it choked the plant and um, whatever grain came was choked away. But finally, verse 8 tells us 
just when we might be discouraged, that other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. That is staggering numbers. Um, And in fact, the only place I could find in all of Scripture in which there was a hundredfold harvest was in Genesis chapter 26 and verse 12. Isaac sowed in the land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. But then the end of the verse says this, the Lord blessed him. In other words, it wouldn't happen unless the Lord blessed him. Well, that makes sense, right? Isaac, the son of Abraham, all the spiritual promises to the family of Abraham. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, a big family. They need to be sustained physically for the kingdom of God to grow, for the family of God to grow, for the Christ child to come. And so the Lord blessed Isaac with a hundredfold harvest, the only person in the history of the world, as far as we know. Most harvests yielded eightfold. This is 30 to 60 to 100. So you know immediately that in this story that Jesus is telling, there's something going on here that is otherworldly. There's something going on here about the kingdom of God that you wouldn't expect. Something spiritual, something powerful. We could put it this way, that if God doesn't do it, it won't be done. And what is impossible with man is what? Possible with God. There's an element of sovereignty. Jesus' point will become clear later. If you persistently reject the seed of His Word, it will lead to the unpardonable sin. Because yeah, there's seed that's sown, and there's people that reject it, but eventually God will have His way, right? He will have His way in this world. 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. His kingdom will grow, His kingdom will expand, His gospel will be victorious. Any unwillingness to receive the Word is always placed on the blame of the man, or we could say the soil. Not on God. God is successful. His word does not return to him void. A gospel harvest is hopeless apart from a sovereign intervention of God. That's Jesus' point. An article was written once about my family in the local newspaper in West Virginia. And it was about the the history of my family, the heritage of Christianity. My great-grandfather, his name was Hammy Smith, and he was a farmer. And he didn't have a lot of money. But one person was quoted in the article of saying that any time he was farming his land, which, by the way, I go back to every year in West Virginia, and I've mowed that land on a tractor, the same land that he plowed with a mule, I've mowed. And on that land, planting a gardener, planting a crop, that if there was even the smell of rain or the feel of rain or the look of rain, Grandpa Hammy Smith would look up to heaven and say three words. He would say, Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Why? Well, because any farmer understands that if there is going to be a crop, God must be involved. It's got to be a work outside of the farmer. That's Jesus' simple point. It's Jesus' simple point. The crowds don't get it, but they enjoyed the story. How many people today go to churches to hear a good story? They're unaffected spiritually. They're unaffected spiritually. They might hear a good communicator. They might feel good emotionally, but there's no spiritual impact. And Jesus wants to say here, listen, if you don't understand these parables, you are on the path of committing the unpardonable sin of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which the religious leaders are perilously close to committing, and even my own family is close to committing unless they believe. So he says in verse 9, he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. 
He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Hearts must be ready to receive this parable because it's not about earthly sowing and reaping, right? It's about heavenly sowing and reaping. And hearts unwilling to receive this message with spiritual ears will be left on the outside of the kingdom looking in. They will not understand. God will farm and produce a gospel harvest that is not dependent upon what man does. It's dependent upon what God Himself does. All throughout the Old Testament we read about this. Isaiah says in Isaiah 9, You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. The kingdom of God always spoken about as a harvest, as a revival. Psalm 126 even speaks about this. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. When I was a little kid, we used to sing a hymn about bringing in the sheaves. The gospel harvest. God will be successful. God is undefeated. God is never lost. The seed will be planted. Maybe we get discouraged because we share the gospel, people don't respond. I've often wondered what it would be like to be a farmer. In fact, I'd like to do that for a little while just so that I could see the evidence that my work was having an impact. Because when you're a preacher, you don't see the spiritual. You don't see into people's hearts and you don't understand why people respond this way and not that way. You don't understand why people do what they do to the church. Why they aren't more committed to the church. Why they don't give to the church of of themselves in a sacrificial way. You don't understand what's going on in the spiritual. I wish that I could see an increase. But I know this, the public exposition of Christ's Word is the primary means of grace whereby God's people are saved, the gospel harvest comes, and God's people will be sanctified. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of what? Truth or Christ. All I can do is do my job. Jesus did His job over and over, labored at preaching. Back in chapter 1 and verse 38, He said to them, Let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. Jesus is preaching a sermon with a parable, giving an exposition. And apparently it falls on deaf ears. Because we're looking at three features of Christ's parabolic teaching. The first one, is the public exposition of Christ's Word, verses 1 through 9. Now we move to point number 2, the private interpretation of Christ's Word, verses 10 through 13. Now we're going to take a bite into Mark's sandwich because he inserts a middle section here where we see Jesus interpreting the parables not to the crowds, but only to the disciples. Don't miss that. The exposition is to the crowds. The interpretation, however, is to the disciples. Verse 10 And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. When he was alone, Matthew 13.10 tells us the question they asked was, why do you speak to them in parables? But obviously we know there's more behind that because they themselves don't understand this parable. There are two groups here. They're alone with Jesus, verse 10 says. Those around him refers to that outer band of disciples. And then the twelve, the inner band, the apostolic band who had been called back in chapter 3. 
The twelve obviously serve as the representatives of the outer band. They more than likely are the ones that come to Jesus to ask the question. Perhaps we can assume, although we don't know, that it's Peter who's the spokesman. You don't want to ask? I'll ask him. Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. You don't know what you're asking. If you ask this, you better really want to know the meaning. Because you might not like what you hear. He provides a three-part explanation. First, he gives a divine disclosure. Notice verse 11. He says, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. To you, that is to the disciples. To those who were outwardly professing belief. Those who were truth seekers. Evidenced in the fact that they're asking for an explanation. To you has been given the secret. I'm going to disclose to you the secret of the kingdom of God. The word secret could also be translated mystery. The Greek word is mysterion. And uh, this is not a mystery such as a modern detective story or an unsolved mystery. A mystery in the Bible or a secret is God's truth that only becomes available if God reveals it. And the phrase has been given... Not to get too technical, don't fall asleep. But it is a divine passive in the Greek, which tells us that it's something received passively by God. God gives it, you receive it. If He didn't give it, you wouldn't have it. What is it? The it is knowledge. Knowledge of a mystery. You can't search and pry for it and find it out. This isn't a riddle that you can discover in your own free will and according to your own flesh. Daniel told King Nebuchadnezzar that No wise men, enchanters, magicians, astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And Daniel says, as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king. In other words, Daniel says, God chose me to be the conduit through which the mystery is passed, but it's God who gives it. This mystery is not... Special information reserved for a few, such as the pagan mystery religions. Those existed in the 7th BC all the way to the 4th AD. These were secret rites of passage, teachings, ceremonies that pervaded the landscape of ancient Rome among the members of the pagan cults. That's not the type that Jesus is speaking about, but he's borrowing that word probably to capture their attention. These cultic rites were places that devotees to a certain deity would gather together and they would have through certain rites portrayed an action that allowed them, the best way to put it is, to participate in the God Himself. They were participating in a secret rite to acquire secret knowledge, to have a secret relationship with the deity. To provide a sanctifying union, we could say, between the deity and his devotees. And they would gather together secretly. A line was drawn. Those that wanted to do it were in. Those that didn't want to do it were out. But the ones who didn't join would never be let in on the secret. A vow would be taken by those who observed these rites and rituals. And that information would never escape the few. Jesus uses that word Mystery, but he's using it to describe truth that would be revealed, and he would be the one that would reveal it. By the way, in the Greek Septuagint, the word musterion is used in Daniel 2 eight times. 
a secret that doesn't remain hidden but is revealed. That's always the way the Bible uses it. Or let me give you another example. In Revelation, uh, you're familiar with this, in Revelation 2 and 3, uh, in total in the book of Revelation, the word mystery or mysterion occurs four times, but in Revelation 2 and 3, it speaks about the mystery. What is the mystery of the seven stars? It's clear that the seven stars represent the pastor teachers of the churches, the angels, the messengers who bring the light of truth to the people. And the mystery of the seven lampstands is that those lampstands represent the churches who have the responsibility to be a light bearers to the world. Paul's epistles describe the mysterion of God 21 times. Speaking about a mystery hidden, now revealed. Perhaps, I have many that we could give, but perhaps one at this point would be profitable. Colossians chapter 1. Paul says in verse 25, I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me to make the word of God fully known. So he's going to reveal fully what was once hidden. What is that? Verse 26, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints in the new covenant. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ was the mystery. Prophets of the Old Testament did not know that the Christ would be named Jesus. The people in the Old Testament had hidden from them certain mysteries, such as the full gathering of the Gentiles. They knew that the nations would hear the gospel, they would hear the message, but they didn't understand the details of that. So, in the New Testament, a mysterion are spiritual realities once hidden but now revealed. New Testament mysteries. Jesus said in verse 34, or Mark tells us that he didn't speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. It required an explanation. Paul would elaborate on this, that in every age a remnant of Jews and Gentiles would be saved until all Israel is saved and gathered into God's harvest. Romans 11.25 That Christ Himself indwells us through the Holy Spirit in one body, uniting Jews and Gentiles together. That is in the church. Paul spoke about that in Ephesians chapter 3. He says this mystery was made known in verse 3 by revelation. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to His holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Through the gospel. So Jesus is beginning to disclose the mysterion. The mystery, all that talk that Paul gives about Jew and Gentile in one body in the church is simply this. It's a message about what the kingdom of God looks like in the new covenant. Jesus is saying, my kingdom is here. My kingship is here. I have invaded the world. I have invaded human hearts. I am the stronger man who has invaded the strong man's house, namely Satan. I have plundered it and I have stolen from him the souls of men and women who have been held in bondage. That's why the resurrection of Christ was the most important day in the calendar of Christian history. Jesus rose from the dead victorious. 
Jesus just spoken about the defeat of Satan. When they accused him that he operated in the power of Beelzebul, he said, wait a second, how can Satan cast out Satan? I came from heaven, not from hell. I came from heaven to invade Satan's kingdom. So he says, you want an explanation, I'll give you one, and it involves a divine disclosure. You can't understand this unless I reveal it to you. To you has been given the secret or the mystery of the kingdom of God. But... There's a second explanation, and it involves a divine darkening. There's another side to this. Not only a divine disclosure, but a divine darkening. The end of verse 11, he says, But for those outside, everything will be in parables. At the sea earlier, Jesus did not interpret this parable. He would do it privately. There were outsiders. We'll call them the non-elect. Salvation truth will remain a mystery to them. They'll hear it with their physical ears. It'll go in one ear and out the other. So the apostles say, what is with these parables? Jesus says, let me explain. They're about a divine disclosure. They're about a divine darkening. And they're also about a divine damnation. Verse 3, verse 12. He says, so that they may indeed see, but do not perceive. That is those outside. And they may indeed hear, but not understand. Why? Lest they should turn and be forgiven. It's a summary quotation from Isaiah chapter 6. We read it earlier. If you want a fuller summary of what Jesus says, you can flip over with me to Matthew chapter 13. And Matthew's account, giving a fuller account, we'll pick up in verse 13, Jesus answers the question, Matthew 13, 13, this is why I speak to them in parables, because, Isaiah 6, seeing they do not see, hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Why? Verse 14, because in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, which says, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, their ears they can barely hear. Their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their heart, turn and I would heal them. They have committed the unpardonable sin, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. They will not repent. They will not turn to be forgiven. Therefore, because they have hardened their hearts, I will harden their hearts further. There will be no escape. Jesus is clearly speaking principally about the religious establishment, who he had said earlier in chapter 3, whoever blasphemes the Holy Spirit has no forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, one that can't be wiped away. Chapter 3, verse 29. The true Israel of God needed to be reconstructed. Why did Jesus call apostles? They represent the twelve patriarchs. Israel needed new leadership. They had all disqualified themselves. Jesus picks 12 new Jewish men who will be the foundation of the New Testament church being built upon what the prophets preached about the Old Testament church. This would be the true Israel of God. Listen, this is not replacement theology. This is fulfillment theology because God promised that He would make from Abraham, who was a Gentile, a great people. A great people. Jews and Gentiles, that's the mystery. All together in one. So Jesus quotes Isaiah seven centuries before. 
who ignored the prophet's preaching. They closed their eyes, they shut their ears, they turned off their brains, and the result of them doing that was catastrophic. They led themselves straight into a final rejection of God. Israel had a history of blaspheming God, and now the leadership of Israel was guilty and on the path of committing the eternal sin of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. So that Jesus is providing an illustration. You want an illustration? I'll give you an illustration. Just like God sent the invading army of Nebuchadnezzar as an instrument of divine judgment, now He is sending His Son into the world to turn some to Himself and to turn others away. The stronger man, Jesus, has entered Satan's royal house, the strong man, and he has plundered those in bondage, but he has left some in bondage there. Jesus said this in Matthew 10.34, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. But a sword. This is a matter of war. And if you want a historical illustration of God's judgment of Israel, you don't even have to read the Bible. Just read your history books, AD 70. Babylonians ransacked, the Romans ransacked Jerusalem just as the Babylonians had ransacked it centuries before, tearing down the temple, destroying the royal house, taking captives into judgment. By quoting Isaiah, Jesus is essentially saying, those Romans are an instrument of my hand just like the Babylonians were an instrument of my hand. I am judging you. You have hardened your heart. Like Pharaoh hardened his heart, I'm going to harden it further. And from now on, I will speak in parables and you won't understand unless by grace I reveal to you what they mean. And you need to know what they mean because they pertain to the kingdom of God. Now to use a southern expression, don't let your head swell. Because we would all be in the same boat if it wasn't for God's grace, right? God reveals His gospel truth to His elect. He conceals it from the non-elect. This is made explicitly clear by Jesus Himself. Jesus prayed, I thank You, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that You have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Jesus prayed, Thank You, Father, that there is an elect people who will have revealed to them the mysterion, the mystery. Not only that, but... Jesus preached about the elect, and He preached about the elect in front of the non-elect. That's sort of scandalous. Jesus said in John 10, you want to know why you don't believe? I'll tell you why you don't believe. You don't believe because you're not among My sheep. My sheep hear My voice, and I know them, they follow Me. I give them eternal life, they'll never perish. No one can snatch them out of My hand. My Father who has given them to Me is greater than all. No one's able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. And then the Jews, that's a technical term in John for the religious leaders, picked up stones to stone him. Who are you to tell us we aren't the elect people of God? We have the blood of Israel flowing through our veins. Well, God still hardens people today who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. The only reason that you believe... The only reason you understand this parable or anything about the Word of God and anything about the Gospel is because the Holy Spirit has been like Nathan the prophet who confronted David. The Holy Spirit has convicted you and said, You are the man. You are guilty of transgressing God's law. And in a puddle of tears and repentance, you cried out for mercy and God gave it. Holy Spirit, soften your heart. 
But be sure that Scripture will never place the blame on God for someone that rejects the gospel. Pharaoh's heart was hardened by God. That came after, I think, six plagues. Before that, the Bible is clear in Exodus chapter 8 that Pharaoh himself hardened his heart when he saw that there was respite. When there was a rest between the plagues, he hardened his heart more. God wasn't to blame. Pharaoh was to blame. Now, it's at this point that um, Jesus asks a question to them that they're probably scared to answer. Notice verse 13. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? I guarantee you none of them would have answered that. Because to say, I don't understand it, would be to admit you might be outside of the kingdom, right? So Jesus says, let me answer it for you. With another question, end of verse 13. How then will you understand all the parables? In other words, this parable is the key to understanding all of the other parables. How can you not understand this? I'm revealing the mystery to you. Here is the mystery The principal point of this parable, the providence of God is effective through Christ to produce a fruitful harvest in the world with the gospel. That's the point. The parables would serve as windows for some to see with greater clarity what God is doing in his house. And parables would serve as doors for others that would bar them out of the kingdom where they couldn't see in and they wouldn't be let in. But all of it has to do with the effectiveness of a fruitful harvest. That's the point. So remember, we're talking about three features of Christ's parabolic preaching. The first feature is the public exposition of Christ's Word, verses 1 through 9. The second, the private interpretation of Christ's Word, verses 10 through 13. And now the pointed application of Christ's Word, verses 14 through 20. Now we see Him privately explaining to the apostles and to the other disciples what this parable means because to them it has been given the mysteries of God. They have been truth seekers. So He's going to reveal it. And He reveals it with pointed application. Four types of heart soil. First, a stoic heart soil. Verse 14, Jesus says, here it is, the sower sows the word. That's the most important line in this whole parable. The sower sows the word. Who is the sower? The sower is God. What is the seed? The seed is the word of God. That becomes plain later. And all of that means that the soil represents human hearts. And by the way, the sower not only represents God, but it represents also any other preacher of Christ. Jesus said this, Do you you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes, see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages, gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. There's an entering into the labor here from other preachers, apostles, pastors, teachers. It goes on. As Jesus said in Luke 10, 16, the one who hears, the one who hears, hears me. The one who rejects me, rejects you. He says in Matthew 10, the one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. 
He says in Mark 9.37, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but he who sent me. Galatians 4.14, Paul would even say, You receive me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. So when God's word is preached, and the message of God is preached, when you reject that, you reject God. You reject the seed of the word, you're not rejecting a mere man, you're rejecting Christ. You're rejecting God. You're rejecting the Holy Spirit. You're rejecting the Father. You're rejecting all of it. The sower sows the seed. Now that simple interpretive key in verse 14 gives way to a description of the stoic heart. We call it the indifferent heart. Verse 15, he says that these are the ones along the path where the word is sown when they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. This depicts a people whose hearts are hard, right? They're indifferent, they're unmoved, they're physically distracted. The message goes in one ear and out the other. And they effectively, Jesus says, cooperate with Satan. They see no value in God's Word because when they hear it, they allow Satan to come and immediately he takes the Word that is sown in them. Just like the birds of the air come behind the farmer sowing the seed, the birds come down, they swoop down, they take it. That's Satan. Spurgeon says, we may delay, but Satan never does. You hear the Word of God, you delay long enough, Satan comes and takes it. That means you remain a slave. You remain in his bondage, in his kingdom. Uh, perhaps the big inhibitor is um, you don't want to be bothered with a message. Uh, you don't want to be bothered like Felix who didn't want to be bothered by the word of God. Paul, come some other time and tell me this gospel truth when I have time for you. Maybe you have a preoccupation with other things. But know this, it's only Satan behind that. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4, The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel. Blinded by one's own importance, one's own busyness, one's own goodness, one's own successfulness. You're just like the heart of the hardened path. Feet, donkeys, treading that path going this way and that way, having no time for God's word, blind to your greatest need because you have everything you want. The hard heart, the stoic heart, listens to God's word with a yawn. With a yawn. Sadly, I've known many in the church like this. When I was growing up, one popular Christian artist attended our church. And uh, we spent time in her home with her family. I wrestled with her son. We were on the same wrestling team. And they were in our home. And every week when she got done with her weekly special music, she would sit on the front pew and she'd open a magazine up like this as if to tell the preacher I don't care what you have to say and frankly I don't have time for what you have to say I liked her but I didn't like what she did how can a true Christian treat God's word that way I mean that's sort of like the line from Ezekiel isn't it the prophet describes to God the audience. You're, you're, you're like a lovely song. Ezekiel tells Israel sung with a beautiful voice and played well on an instrument he says to God, they hear your words, but they refuse to practice them. In one ear and out the other, a stony heart. The only thing that can change that, promise of the new covenant, Ezekiel 36, I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. God must do it. But not all the responses are negative, or at least on the surface, no pun intended. The stoic heart soil gives way to the spontaneous heart soil, verses 16 and 17. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground. 
The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. That's someone who's always high energy. Yeah, man, emotional, impulsive, moving on to the next best thing. Their hearts are like rocky ground. There's some level of joy. I mean, in Israel, there's always a thin two or three inch layer of soil over the bedrock. So there's some hope that the seed will be implanted. These are the happy people, shallow people, spontaneous people. They do what feels good in the moment. They hear a message, oh, that's great. They say, I want to follow Christ. But notice, they immediately fall away because they have no root in themselves. They only endure for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. Verse 17. Their hearts are hard as well, aren't they? It's just harder, a little bit deeper. They have enough shallow joy and excitement about God's word, but not enough. They're not true believers, evidenced by the fact that when tribulation comes, they go. That seed of the word is scorched, as verse 6 says. And in time, they are burnt up, fed up, and they let up. They move on spontaneously to the next thing, to find solace in something else, happiness in something else. Trials always have a way of pushing false believers away from God. Difficulties reveal true character. But for an unbeliever, things become too hard, too much effort. Tribulation comes. Maybe that's uh, pressure from the world. Maybe um, that persecution that's described there as direct attacks on a Christian. That's too much. I know that, uh, I understand that, uh, you know, God commands us to worship on Sunday, but there's a pandemic going on. I I can't do that. And after a pattern of that, you you see that you don't need the church. And the reason you see you don't need the church is because you never were part of the church, 1 John 2, 19. You walked away from us because you never were of us. A defector like Judas. Immediately they fall away. Scandalizo is the Greek term. It's where we get our English term scandal. When they're scandalized because they profess to be a Christian and the cost counts and the suffering is real, they move on to something else. And why is that? Notice again, um, back in verse 5, seed fell on the rocky ground where it didn't have much soil. Didn't have much soil. No root in themselves is the way the Bible describes it. No root in themselves. No conviction. No conviction means that you'll never be able to stand on principle. Jesus says, I will give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. True Christians endure persecution. They endure tribulation of the worst kind because God is holding them in His hand. He's preserving them. But there's a third type of heart. Historic heart soil. Spontaneous heart soil gives way to the third type, and that is a superficial heart soil. These are the ones in verses 18 and 19 that are sown among the thorns. Every path had unwanted bramble. These are the people that go away. They don't bear fruit. They're not believers 
And here's the reason why. It's not because of the price of persecution, but it's, listen to this, for the pursuit of pleasure. That's why the gospel never penetrates their hearts. They are those who hear the word, as the Bible says, verse 19, the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, the desires for other things enter in, choke the word, it proves unfruitful. That's always how the religiously superficial are, how they look, how much money they have, what others think. They're narcissists. And several things compete between them and the gospel. First, a desire for power. They're preoccupied, as the verse says, verse 19, with the cares of the world. Cares of the world are like thorns that choke the word so that their life proves unfruitful. They want power and control over their existence. They don't understand the Christian life is about self-denial, surrender, sacrifice, service, and suffering. They're filled with anxiety about this world. Therefore, they don't trust God. They're stingy with their time and their resources and their money and service to the kingdom of God. The sin here is selfishness, which chokes the word from their hands and heart before they actually have it. And they say something like this, if I only had more money, all my problems would be solved. Preoccupied with the cares of the world, a desire for power. Not only that, but a desire for profit keeps them out of the kingdom. Because this sort of superficial heart allows the deceitfulness of riches to choke the word so that their lives prove unfruitful. They're consumed with money, what they've bought, what they have, what they want. They're deceived into thinking they are in the kingdom, but they are not. They have a love of money. Of course, the Bible says that's the root of all evil. Jesus said in Matthew 6, Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. They reveal where their heart is and reveal where their standing is outside of the kingdom because they're superficial and they're connected to the deceitfulness of riches. I've told the story before that when I was dating Corey, I decided it was time to ask her for her hand in marriage. And I remember, you know, preparing this speech and everything. I said, Corey, I, I want you to know that I love you more than anything in the world. But I'm not rich. Uh, I don't have a brand new boat and a nice truck to pull it with like Billy Hastings. But I do want you to marry me. And I'll never forget, she, she looked up, with me, up at me with those big brown eyes and paused for a moment. And she said, I love you too with all your heart. But could you tell me more about Billy Hastings? Not really. If she would have done that, I would have said, the deal is off. Because that would reveal divided loyalties, right? That would reveal a heart that isn't fully committed. Spurgeon put it this way. He said, how can there be room for Christ in the inn when it is crowded with other guests? Cares of the world. Power. Power to control things because you're so worried. Deceitfulness of riches, profit. Also a desire for pleasure. The rest of the verse says, the desires for other things enter in, choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. That's someone who wants an easy life. They don't value Christ. And they don't understand that anything in life worth anything costs you everything. There's no seed of the word there's only, only the weeds of the world that choke them out of the kingdom of God. 
That's a superficial heart. And Jesus says, the seed will be sown on these hearts, the stoic heart, spontaneous heart, superficial heart. But then there's the soft heart soil. Verse 20. These are described as good, but those that were sown on the good soil, these are the ones who hear the Word and accept it and bear fruit. Now we're getting somewhere. They hear the Word. And they do the Word. It produces fruit. Their hearing results in what? Heeding. Heeding. No one is justified by a profession of faith. Sproul was famous for teaching that. We must possess the Word, not merely profess it, right? And what precedes that doctrine of justification in the order of salvation is the elective work of God whereby He turns over the soil of our hearts so that we receive it. And that is why, beloved, I call this the parable of the sower. It's not the parable of the soils. The soil is lying there doing nothing. The farmer has to till the ground, cultivate it, so that a root takes and there is fruit. Where there is a root, there will be fruit. The receiving of the seed. Cultivated in the garden of the heart, wrought by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus put it this way. I know you're familiar with it. In John 6, He said, No one can come to Me unless the Father who sent Me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. John 6.65, This is why I told you that no one can come to Me unless it is granted to him by My Father. And the Holy Spirit is the agent of that. Jesus was clear when He comes, the Holy Spirit, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they do not believe in Me. Concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see Me no longer. Concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Is judged. This is uh, the fruit of the Apostle Paul's ministry. If you turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 just quickly. He picks up on this theme of the Word of God being sown in a heart that produces fruit. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 13. He says, We also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the Word of God, which you heard from us, watch this, you accepted it not as the Word of men, but as what it really is, the Word of God, which is what? At work in you believers. God's Word, His seed, is always at work in the hearts of believers. That's why Jesus could say, I am the vine, you are the branches, and that's why you bear fruit. You will bear fruit. And notice verse 20, it could be 30-fold, 60-fold, or 100-fold. Mathematically, that could equate to, by some estimates, 3,000%, 6,000%, and 10,000%. I have no clue where they come up with those figures. I'm not a mathematician. But if that's true, that makes even what we would think of as a hundredfold in Genesis 26 with Isaac, measly. This is unthinkable, incalculable proportions of massive gospel influence. That the kingdom of God will grow in the world. And I love that in verse 20. 
it uses the present tense. In all the other verses, it's the aorist tense. But in verse 20, it's the present tense that the hearing of the soft soil of the heart is a hearing that is continual and abiding. Those are the ones who hear, present tense, constantly hear. This is hyper-hearing, hyper-obedience. Seeing is believing, and hearing is believing. It's the evidence of the fact that God has touched the deaf, the dumb, and the blind. He's raised a soul to new life, so there is fruit. That's why Paul says in Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, self-control, all of it. It's the result of God's work in individuals and in the world. And in the world. This is the kingdom of God, listen to me very clearly on this, not merely in your heart. The kingdom of God manifested in your heart produces fruit that we can say, by your fruit we will know you, right? As the Bible says. But the kingdom of God is here now. Christ is ruling and the fruit of that kingdom is seen now in the gospel extending to the nations. I don't need some sophisticated argument of eschatology to prove that to you. All I need is two verses. Colossians 1 and verse 4. Paul says, Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth. What is the word of truth in Jesus' parable? It's the seed. And what has happened? Verse 6, This word has come to you individually as indeed... It has in the whole world. It's bearing fruit and it's increasing. Notice the progression of the Word of God increasing and the kingdom increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. You understood it. You understood the mystery. And it's increased in your hearts and in the world. And that's why in the next parables Jesus gives... He speaks about the growth of the kingdom. The growth of the kingdom. I'll close with this. Every 4th of July, we have a tradition as a family. We watch uh, the movie The Patriot. The best scene of The Patriot is the end when Mel Gibson, uh, I think that's his name. I don't know actors. Anyway, he's the leader of the militia and finally the militia is together with the regular army and they're fighting the British and the strategy is we're going to bait them. He comes over the top of the ridge. The British see this small, ragged group of militia, and they begin charging. So the militia retreats, but they're really not retreating from the battle. They're retreating to join the battle because as they run down the field, they join up with the regular army who then meets together the British. In the Old Testament, there was a battle between God and the Egyptians. That pillar of cloud separated the running Israelites from Pharaoh's hard-hearted Egyptian army. Exodus 14 says that the host of Egypt came to the host of Israel, but there was the pillar of cloud that was there providing light for the Israelites, darkness for the Egyptians. They were in dark. Because they had hardened their hearts, they were in the dark. They joined God in the battle. And guess what? He won. He always wins. God's kingdom has dawned with the resurrection of Christ. His kingdom is here. The only question is, whose side are you on? 
Are you on the Lord's side or the devil's side? There's only two sides. True church and the false church. There's God, there's Satan. There's heaven, there's hell. There's light, there's darkness. There's love, there's hate. There's the gospel, there's the false gospel. You're not neutral. You're not neutral. You're not neutral. Even if you've been baptized, you're not neutral. You're either in or you're out. You're either in or you're out. But we know that even a small harvest like 30-fold in the first century turned the world upside down. God's harvest will be great. Clan Christ is sovereignly recruiting elected souls into the ranks of His army, and He won't be defeated. We must press on, but we must press on ensuring that we've been clothed with the right uniform. And that uniform is revealed to us in Ephesians chapter 6. It's the breastplate of righteousness. Unless you are clothed with the breastplate of righteousness, you are not fit for this fight. You might be a religious defector and an imposter, but you're not truly part of God's royal army. His army will win. And there are times in the life of the history of the church when it looks like he's going to be defeated, but he's never been defeated. You cannot extinguish the light of the gospel. You cannot extinguish the lampstand of the true church. We herald the gospel. There are all sorts of responses. We don't have answers for why people respond the way they respond, except for this. We understand there's an elect people of God and a non-elect people of God. Instead of questioning God on that, we praise Him that if we've given evidence that we're elect, evidenced in our fruit, we thank Him for that. We preach the gospel with bold confidence and optimism that there will be a massive gospel harvest that will bring joy as we bring in the sheaves. Let us pray. Father, we do thank you for this parable. It is a rich parable. It is a long parable. And we have taken longer this morning to look at it because we have to see it in one shot. Because we need to understand it is the key to understanding all the other parables. Your word at work in the world in your kingdom. The blessing of your kingdom. You will not lose this battle. You will not lose this war. We're so grateful for that, Lord. We're grateful for the establishment of your kingdom, the expansion of your kingdom. And Lord, our prayer this morning is, if there are any here who aren't in that kingdom, that your blessed Holy Spirit would sovereignly call your elect to yourself to bring them into the kingdom, regenerate them so they can see the kingdom of God, be born again, be forgiven. We pray that as we work through these parables, these much shorter parables. They won't take as much time, but they still come with weighty truth. Help us, Lord, now that we've done the hard work of laying the foundation to understand all that your word will teach us. And now bless us, Lord, as well as we respond with this hymn of response. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.